Well, good morning, church. How are we? Yes, amen. I'm so glad that you are here today. If you have your Bibles, would you open to the Gospel of Luke? Chapter 10 will be our text today. And guys, one more time, I am thankful that we have the recruit class 66 from the Mississippi Highway Patrol. Guys, can we give them a warm Broadmoor welcome? We are so thankful for you, thankful for your service. We know that God has a great plan for your life, and I am thankful each and every one of you, but specifically Krista Groom, I am thankful for you, my friend. Uh, Krista is a highway patrolman, and she has been a lifelong friend for me and my family. Uh, Krista is proof that it is beneficial to have friends in high places. Uh, so, uh, that being said, uh, men and women, I thank you for your service, uh, and I just ask that you remember when you get that call for the 08 Blue Dodge Ram that you remember, I did not mean to be going that fast, okay? Just remember that Josh Braddy 08 Blue Dodge Ram speedometer works sometimes. Okay, all that being said, I am so thankful that we are here today. We are in week four, the final week of the Art of Relationship series. And we will find this culmination in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. So far, we've looked at what it means to be healthy in our relationships. And this isn't your typical relationship series. For those who may be joining us today, and you would say, well, relationship series, is this, is this a series on like marriage and how I'm supposed to talk to my spouse? I think it's beneficial, and I think you need to learn how to talk to your spouse. Like, I think those things are good. But this is more in how are you created to be relationally healthy. Because this is what we know as we understand the gospel implication over our life. God created us to do life together. If you are on your own in this Christian walk, you are in a dangerous place. You are walking in a way that God never intended for you. God has always called us to be in community, to be with one another. Even from the very beginning, I know it was in the form of marriage, but it was not good for man to be alone, so he created for him a suitable helper. God has always created us to do life with other people. That being said, sin has marred that for us. We go all the way back to Genesis 3, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And we see how it has made a mess of everything. And a lot of us have a long legacy of broken relationships, whether that is where we live now, maybe the, the family in which we came from. That was week one, and, and Dr. Preston Crowe led us in that. And then week two, Dr. Neil Marsh led us in how to, to truly know and be known. And, and last week, we looked at what it means to, to be disciple makers in, in a healthy relationship. And today, today in this culmination is what does it mean for God's call on our life? Like, we know we're supposed to make disciples, but that is going to come in many different platforms. Don't know what that looks like for you. I know what it looks like for me as a pastor, but it is going to be vastly different for what it looks like for you. But today, you are going to hear of an account that happened. Jesus is commissioning 72 of his disciples to go and be messengers of the coming kingdom. Now, I want to be clear on this because I want us to have a proper understanding of this text. This isn't a general teaching in the sense of, well, Jesus sends out 72, and that's theoretically 72 of us across this room. No, no. This is very specific and very real. He chose 72 people that lived in the first century, and he commissioned those 72 to go out two by two to go and proclaim the coming kingdom. He would, he would send them out before he went to do the, mir the miraculous works that, that God had called him to do. 
Now, although this was a specific call on their life and their generation for their time and history, I believe there's so much for us to learn today. I believe that we all have calls on our life, and I believe that those calls are big. What you're going to see today, that the call on our life that God gives us is contrary to popular belief. Always, listen to me, always, if it is a call from God, always going to be more than you can handle. Wait, Josh, I was taught that God would never give you more than you can handle. I don't know who taught you that. They may have been well-intentioned, but that's not biblical. Here's why. Because when God calls us to a task, he's going to call us to a task that's going to bring him glory and not us. We got to remember that, church. And so when God calls us to something that scares us, that makes us nervous, that when we think of stepping into that obedience and it calls us to, to kind of take a moment, to take a breath and think, is this really God's call in my life? It seems too hard. I would say you are at the right spot to say, this is God's will for me and my family. As I look across this room, I see the stories that prove that to be true. But without further ado, I want us to, to jump in. There's, there's two parts to this. There's the call of the 72, and then they're sent out. And we don't know how long they're out. But then there's the response, okay? Now, the call's going to be a little strange, okay? So, so let's jump in and look what it says. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1 and following. Here's what it says. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, why 72? Now, we could get into a whole sermon just on this verse. We're not, but I do want to give you some understanding because I think the implications are huge, okay? More than likely, this number is connected to Genesis 2. So you're going to write that passage down, or Genesis 10. Write Genesis 10 down, and I want you to go back and read it. And you're going to open to Genesis 10 when you get home or tonight, when you are ready to go to sleep, because I promise you that chapter is going to put you right to sleep, Okay? Genesis 10 is the genealogy that follows Noah's family coming off the ark. How was the world filled after the flood subsided and Noah's family multiplied and was fruitful? What you're going to find is in that family lineage, there is, depending on what translation you read, 70 or 72. Okay? So if you go to the original Hebrew text, there's 70 families represented, representing the entirety of the earth. There were 70 families represented in, in Genesis 10. But if you read from the Septuagint, now this is getting way in the weeds. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. It adds two families to that, which brings us to the number 72, which represents the entirety of the earth. Implication, when Jesus is sending out the 72 he is sending out people to tell everybody about the good news of the coming kingdom. Everybody. Not just Jew, but every single soul that is on planet Earth gets to hear this good news of the gospel. That is going to be huge for them, and listen to me, huge for us. But while we're in Genesis, uh, thinking through Genesis 10, do you remember Genesis 3? The whole Adam and Eve, the place where he sinned, the entire world is now run by the great enemy. Do you remember what form the enemy took in Genesis 3? The serpent, right? I want you to remember that and I want you to put it in your mind, okay? 
So we're, we're going to talk about that later on, but, but you need that context as we move forward. So Genesis 10, the 72, or the 70, depending on what translation you're using. Genesis 3, the serpent, we have it in our mind, okay? Are we ready? Verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus is making clear, the people are ready to hear and receive the message that they are being sent to proclaim, so much so that they don't have enough proclaimers to get the message out fast enough. Because this is true. Jesus tells the 72, before they go out, before they go and tell the message, what they do first is to pray earnestly. Another way to hear that if you go and do that word study of what earnest prayer actually means is they are to go and beg the Father in heaven to send more than the 72 that are going out because this task is so big, they can't do it all in and of themselves because there's going to be a lot of implications along the way, okay, for us and our life and how we are called to live. The first call to do on their life as they are living out what God has trusted to them is to pray earnestly, ask God to send more laborers because it is desperately needed. Jesus is making it crystal clear that this task is too big for them. And before they go, they must seek the Lord earnestly. All right, thinking through this for a second. If God, the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all life, the author and perfecter of our faith, is trusting them with a task, what do you, what do you think their expectations would be of how God would resource them to get this great and mighty and all-encompassing task done? That God would give them all they need and then some? That God would give them luxury and amenities and, and the greatest accommodations? Ah, maybe, maybe God would give them health, wealth, and prosperity. That would seem a good way to think. Here, here it is, though. I think the answer to that is sometimes, but not here. And there's good reason for it. Here's instead how Jesus sends out the 72. Verse 3, go your way, and behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carrying no money bag, no, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. There's a lot here, guys. The first thing that they are called to do after they pray, after they have, they have sought the Father's face and they have begged for more, for more laborers to go into the, the, the work of the harvest, it's now time for them to go. Oh, guys, this is a huge uh, imperative for us to remember in our lives. There's no, seemingly, we don't, we, don't, we don't have all the information, I don't think, but seemingly there's no prep course. There's no months of equipping classes, getting them ready to go into this task. They have received the message, and Jesus says, it's now time to go. And then he gives them this promise. You, you would hope the promise is, and go, and you're going to have everything that you need, and it's, everything's going to be great, don't worry. Instead, he says this strange statement. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Meaning, there's certain hardship ahead. The promise of, and here's the illustration, you're going to be attacked, and you're not going to be able to defend yourself. That's a big deal. 
There's going to be people who hate you for proclaiming this message, and you're not going to be able to defend yourself when they come against you, and that's going to have to be okay with you. All right? That doesn't mean defense is not going to come. It just means you're not going to be able to defend yourself. That's going to be key. Just wait. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, and no sandals. This mission that Jesus is sending the 72 on is all business. The call is to be single-minded in focus and in action. So much so, he says this at the end of those commands. Greet no one on the road. Don't get distracted from the mission. An honest question from the 72 could be, okay, but where will we stay? What will we eat? If, if, we're, not, if we're not supposed to bring extra, and when you see the, the don't bring money and don't bring a knapsack and don't bring sandals, when you go back and you study it, it is what it's saying. Don't bring any more than you need. Don't, don't bring extra in the sense of, now I'm going to pick on the way we do missions. Mark, I love you, brother. This isn't you. How many of us, this is an indictment. I don't know why I'm smiling, probably because I'm nervous. How many of us go and do missions in the name of Jesus and we do more vacationing than we do missions? We come back with all the, the things that we've bought and the, the things that we want to show and, and we've, we've had meals fit for kings and queens. Listen, I, I'm just telling you, I've been there. I got, come to my office, I'll show you all the trinkets I bought. This mission was different. This mission was to say, it's not about that. This mission is, is needed in this day and in this hour. You must go. Don't turn from the left. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Make sure that you stay focused. If somebody stops you along the way just to have a conversation, don't engage the conversation because the mission supersedes that. The reason he says this to these 72 is to instill in them the importance of the call on their life in this season, to allow them to feel the gravity of this moment. So where will we go? Where will we stay? What will we eat? The questions that would be in their mind. Verse 5, Jesus answers. Whatever house you enter, so, so whenever you come to a place and the place that I'm sending you, Whenever you go to the house, I want you to say, peace be to this house. This word peace is, is the Greek term for the Hebrew word shalom. The peace of God be to this house. When we read the New Testament, we understand that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. So when they go into the house, they offer a blessing of God's peace. And if it is well received, and if they return peace, then you know that you are home. And whatever they provide for you is yours to enjoy. Here's how it's explained, verse 6 and following. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whether you are entering a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, here's the message, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, guys, we may get lost on that because we talk about the message being, you need to put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. This is that same message. The Jewish people have been waiting forever for the Messiah to come. And the message they are giving is, he is here. 
Put your hope and trust in Yeshua, in Jesus. Put your hope in him. The kingdom of heaven has come near to you. Here's what happens, though, if they don't receive that message. But whenever you enter a town, this is verse 10, whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, this is uh, what would be considered a Jewish idiom. Now, for us, for the most part, I would say almost 99% of us in this room may not grasp the weight of what they are saying here, what Jesus is, is telling them to say. There was this belief that, that just because you were of the family of Abraham, because you were Jewish, that you were automatically right with God, that you were waiting on the promised one to come, and when he came, that he would restore all things to the way that they were supposed to be. Well, Jesus comes in a way different than what the Jews originally had thought. They thought he would come in kingdom, earthly kingdom, might and power to overthrow the, the oppressive Roman government at the time. Well, Jesus doesn't come in royalty at all. He's born in a borrowed manger. He grows up the son of a carpenter. He is poor. The scriptures tell us that he would be nothing to look at, meaning that he is not handsome in his, in his image. And so... Here's what happens. They come and say, the kingdom of heaven is here. His name is Jesus. Put your hope and trust in him. And if they do not receive that, then you are to go out from their house and you are to dust your feet off. Here's why that would be important for the Jewish people. Because when they would go through a Gentile city, when they got to the edge of town, they would stop and they would knock the dust off their feet because they didn't want those from the Gentiles, anything associated with them, even the dust of their city, still attached to them as they went back to their home. Here's what they would signify with this statement. You may be Jewish by birth, but you are not in the family of God. That's why the statement of it would be better for Sodom on the day of his return than it would be for this town. That's a big statement. That's a weighty statement for them. All right, that's the call on their life. Does that sound easy? Like, do you, do you think the 72 said, well, I can't wait, to, can't wait to accomplish that. That's going to be great. It's going to be the easiest thing we've ever done. I can't wait for everybody in every city we go to to be angry at us and want to kill us. Let's go. We don't know how long they were on mission. We don't know to what cities they went to, but we do know they went, and we do know that it was wildly successful. Here's how we know. Go to verse 17. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with, what's the word? Joy. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. All right, they came back from this journey filled with joy and filled with gladness. They are completely overwhelmed by joy. Why? Their statement Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, I know we're in a Baptist church. And the moment we start talking about Holy Spirit things or demonic things, we get a little bit nervous in this place. Let me let, me let you hear it a different way. 
We, we, don't, we don't know the details of the interaction, but we do know what happened. Demons being subject to us. Here it is another way. We went into the places that were controlled by darkness, and with your light, the darkness ran. And now your light controls and shines brightly. Now listen to me, I have taken liberty in writing that. You may sit here just saying, Joshua doesn't say that. Right. Here's what we know from Genesis 3. From that moment, the enemy established authority on earth. Jesus Christ coming. The whole beauty of Christmas is there was light coming into the darkness. That in a world controlled by the enemy, there was a new way, a better way, a way that would soon come and destroy the enemy. And so when the 72 are sent out and they are doing these miraculous works and signs, the enemy is on the run. And where Satan had a stronghold, God now controls. This is something amazing for them to see. It's why they are full of joy. Jesus affirms their testimony. Look at verse 18. And he, Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, this verse is strange. It's even more strange when you study it in original language. The verb fall. When when you see it here, I saw Satan fall. That verb right there is incredibly unique because it is in what is called the the imperfect sense. Tense. It, It is this. It is this idea that Jesus is saying, I watched this happen in real time. Not not before the foundations of the world, not in some future version, but I'm watching it unfold right now. And this is what he's saying to him. You think that's amazing. I'm watching Satan run. Now you may, may look at this, and again, sentence structure matters. Does this mean that Satan fell like lightning from heaven? So, so was he in heaven and he fell? Or did he fall like lightning from heaven? It was fast and sudden. For me, as I read this and I understand it, it's the second. We know that he had already been kicked out. Go to Isaiah for that. But we do know that he was in control. He is the, the prince of the power of the air. But Jesus is saying in this statement, I am watching us take back ground that the enemy once held. Here it is, though. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In that context, in this sentence structure, here's the implication. In your obedience, I watch Satan lose ground that he once had. How were the 72 able to do this incredible thing? Look at verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. All right, Josh, if you pull out a snake or a scorpion, I'm out. Look, we ain't that kind of Baptist church. You want a cool snake show? The Mississippi Wildlife Extravaganza got one going on this afternoon. It's creepy. I want nothing to do with it. This verse has been taken very literally by some, not us. If you go back to Genesis 3, what form did the enemy take? That of a serpent. If you go back and study first century writings, serpents and snakes were always signified for, for demonstrating darkness or the enemy. 
But what does it mean that Jesus said to his messengers, I am going to give you power over the enemy. In their efforts, the enemy could not hurt them. Does that mean that they couldn't really get hurt? That they couldn't die? Well, that's a loaded question, and that's probably better answered another day. It would be a great question to answer on our After the Message podcast, so please be sure to tune in this week. But that's not the point of this text. You say, Josh, that's a really big point. It should be. It's not, though. Josh, how do you know it's not the point of the text? Look at the very first word in verse 20. Nevertheless. It's not, it's not about anything that you have just seen. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, what you have seen, demons running, darkness fleeing, having the power to crush the enemy everywhere you go. Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As incredible and successful as their mission was, They were called not to put their joy in what they did or saw. They were to put their joy in what God did on their behalf. Church, that is true for us today as well. Their names are written in heaven because God is good. So here is our challenge for today. Oh, oh, what what a thought. For our names to be written in heaven, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. They belong to him because they put their faith in him, not because of what they did for him. Remember when Jesus asked his disciples who they believed him to be? And Peter was the the first one. He answers real quickly, you were the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, the 72's obedience to the mission didn't gain God's love. That was never the point but it proved that they were already consumed by God's love. Their actions weren't to get God to love them. Their actions were because God loved them. That's a big difference, church. So the question that we answer, although that was specifically for them, the question is still valid for us. Why do we do what we do every day? If you are attempting to live this Christian life in hopes of God seeing you, knowing you, and loving you, you are going to be sadly disappointed because we will fail more than we get it right. I am thankful that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so no man can boast. It is a gift of God that we have been brought into the family. And so anything that we do must be done because we are compelled and consumed by the love of God. I do believe that the 72's call and their mission was very specific to them for their time on this earth. I believe that we can learn so much from their call and their response to their call. The fact that it seems so hard and overwhelming and daunting, yet they came and returned with pure joy because God was better than they could have ever hoped for, asked, or imagined. Even though that is specific to them, I believe that that we can apply these principles to the specific calls on our life. We have scripture-mandated calls on our life today. They are bigger than us. They should drive us to fervent prayer. 
We can and should expect to be overwhelmed by joy and how our Father marks out the path before us. The call that has always been set before us from the foundations of the world, those are recorded here. We know that one of those calls, the the overarching call of our life is is to be disciple makers, disciplers who make more disciples. We get that from the Great Commission. But church, as we shift gears, I want to be very specific here with the time that I have left today, which isn't very long. I believe that God has uniquely positioned us over the last month to do something different in our generation that's never been able to be done before in this way. That, 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 that's not just hyperbole. I believe that with all that I am. I believe God in his grace, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, I believe God showed us, showed us from Scripture, a call in our life, but now it uniquely and beautifully is set upon a tee for us to step to the plate and swing as hard as we can and let God get all the glory. And so today we have an opportunity to present to you something called the Shelter Initiative. Born out of the mandate of Scripture, James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So as you look to the screens today, you are going to see some slides that are going to go forward. The name of this initiative is called the Shelter Initiative. Not just because it fits in our cool little branding with our house behind the beach because I do believe that God has called us to live out what we have received. And every soul in this room who has been born again through Jesus Christ has received shelter from the Father. For he is our strong tower. He is our refuge in our time of need. To be clear, this isn't just a response to Roe versus Wade being overturned. This is a response to the call of Scripture on our life. Before I show you anything else, before I say another word, I want to be clear with you. This is not, it cannot be driven by anything other than the love of Christ that consumes us. This cannot be guilt-driven. This cannot be emotion-driven. This cannot be obligation-driven because I am fixing to share with you some statistics that are incredibly sobering. And I've prayed through this all week, and Lord, I'm asking even now to allow your ears to hear it exactly how he wants you to hear it. Because I know as I hear these stats, I weep. My heart breaks for people, for families, for our generation, for Madison County. But our response cannot be driven by guilt, by emotion or obligation. It must be forever and always driven by the love of Christ that consumes us and compels us. So we'll start with the stats of foster care. In our state of Mississippi, 3,800 children right now are in the foster care system. 10% of those children are from Hines, Rankin, and Madison counties. The stats come from Southern Christian Services. Just go ahead and and let that sink in, just for reference, okay? 3,800 in our state. Um, For those who who have worked in foster care, maybe, maybe, maybe you 
you and your family have, have been a part of the restorative work of what the foster care system is, is created to do. Maybe you were resource parents, but, but just for, for reference sake, in this giant room, there are 2,400 seats. There are 3,800 children right now that have been removed from their home and are in different homes if they're lucky because there is such a need for fostering, such a need for resource families to allow these children to come into their homes. Many of these children are in group situations. Some of these children are in hotel situations. Talk to a social worker. Some of these children are in office situations where they are sleeping in a social worker's office because there is nowhere else for them to go. 3,800 in our state, 380 of those, that would be 10% from Madison, from Hines, and Rankin County. The next stat is absolutely sobering. June 24, 2022, Mississippi's only abortion clinic was shut down. We praise God for that. Up until that day, historically, on average, 61 abortions were carried out per week. Week. Even more staggering. These stats come from the Mississippi Department of Health. One in seven pregnancies from Hines, Rankin, and Madison counties ended in abortion. That is heartbreaking. If you need any more further understanding that this is not just a statistic on a Sunday morning, social media is used for good, but usually not. Because my wife and I share a Facebook account, and because we are tied to the Madison Moms Facebook page, I do not put this out there to cast blame, but I am telling you even just last night, there was someone asking, please take my baby because I cannot do this. That's here. Okay, listen to me. Here's, here's how this relates. If there were 61 abortions on average per week in the state of Mississippi through our only abortion clinic here in Jackson, there's now on average 61 pregnancies that for whatever reason are not desired. Church, it is time for us to stand. It is time for us to step up to the plate. So in view of those staggering statistics, the shelter initiative will minister to. Our goal is four. We will minister to those who are involved in adoption those who are involved in foster care, those who are impacted by unexpected pregnancies, and those who have been impacted by abortion in their past. So, so these are the four ways that we are, in, in, our, in our understanding, going to minister to our community. But guys, listen to me. Our community lives in this church. All four of those are represented here. This isn't the place for blame. This isn't the place for how in the world could you do that? This is the place for the love and grace of Jesus Christ to restore and redeem. And so church, are we going to be a church who is committed to running to the hurting? And if we are, the time is now. 
And so we have five goals that we hope to see. They're pretty audacious. But we hope to see these five goals met sometime over the course of the next coming year. And here's goal number one. That Broadmoor would create a Broadmoor-affiliated support group for those who are impacted by abortion. Let us be crystal clear. With a church our size and with our makeup, there is no doubt plenty of people who are in this room or watching online who have experienced an abortion. For, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not here to, to, to cast blame on you. I am just telling you, we have help for you. We are here to love you, to love your family, to love, to love all those who are affected in, in that decision in your life. And so we, we want to see over the next year a support group because one does, there's not one that exists anywhere around here. We want to see it exist here in this place that we would become a safe haven for people to know that they will not be judged when they walk in, but they will be loved back to a place of whole and healing. To that end, if you are someone who has an exper have experienced an abortion and you were saying, Josh, I don't... I hear you saying safe place. I hear you saying no, no, no guilt or blame. I feel differently. Here's what I would encourage you to do. If you would reach out to, to Dr. Preston Crow, he is our, the lead of our counseling ministry. He preached three weeks ago. He would love to minister to you, but also to get you maybe, maybe positioned to be a part of this ministry. But I want to be clear that we would love for you to be a part of of what God is going to do. Second goal that we want to see over the course of the next year is we want to see 10 members of our church trained in trauma response. We are a church, look, we are committed to paying for that training. We want people to be ready, specifically in response to trauma in someone else's life, that when the unthinkable happens or hard happens or heartbreak is there, and it is sure to, that we would be the first and the fastest to run. Goal number three, we're praying that God would give 20 members of this church to begin the adoption process. We know because that process is, is long and, and hard, as it should be, that it may not be completed by this time next year, but we know that we want to stand by you as you are beginning that process. So maybe right now the Spirit is speaking to you and your family, affirming some things that are welling up in you. Maybe you are a part of that 20 members. Goal number four, that we have 100 members from our church certified to be a resource family here in Mississippi. That is a foster family here in Mississippi for you to be ready to receive one of those or multiples of those 3,800 kids who are in the foster system right now. And goal number five, that we have 1,000 members supporting those impacted by foster care, adoption, unplanned pregnancies, and abortion. We pray that the Lord would bless us as we aim to carry out this call on our life to care for the orphan and the widow in our day. And you may be sitting here and say, Josh, that sounds great, that sounds overwhelming, but how do I start? Where do I begin? Where can I get more information? There are three things we're calling you to today. It is not to commit to be an adoptive parent, a foster parent, or uh, an abortion support group. It's not even to be a part of the thousand who are supporting just yet. 
The first thing we are asking you to do today is the same thing that we see Jesus asking those 72 to do before they are sent out, and that is to pray earnestly to the Father. We ask you to pray, Father, give us a heart that runs to the hurting. I don't know how, uh, what role I will play in that, but I know I will play a role. Second thing we're asking you to do today is to commit to learn. Plan to join us for an informational meeting Sunday, August the 14th. That will be at 5 p.m. in the venue. We would love for you to be a part of that. You can get more information by texting the word SHELTER to 32373 or the QR code that is right there. You pull up your camera and it's there. Or you go to the front page of our website. If this goes by too fast, information is there as well. And then finally, as our worship team comes back up, we are asking you to give. But, but this, again, I know you hear the word initiative and you may think, oh no, this is just one more new thing, one more shiny object. This is not that. Guys, this is a call from the scriptures from the beginning for the church to care for orphans and widows in their distress. And we want to be faithful in that call on our lives. And we believe the best way to do that is through the work of the local church. Church, we can't do the work of the local church until we're all in this together, giving faithfully. This is not a giving talk. But I am being very crystal clear with you. If all of us who are members in this church committed to tithing and giving offerings, not so the preacher can drive new car and live in a bigger house, but so we can see Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So we can see the darkness flee. Guys, if we put our resources together, I think of our community, I've been to our houses, we have extra room for boys and girls to come and live in our homes. We have extra money to give to make sure that women who are nervous to have a kid because they don't have resources, we have resources that they can do it. And you say, Josh, that doesn't sound biblical. Acts chapter 2, what did the early church do? They sold their possessions to make sure all, everyone who had need, those needs were met. I want to be clear. That doesn't mean we just give everything away for the sake of giving it away. I believe there's prudence in doing life with people, getting to know stories. It is never prudent just to give someone money and to walk away. That's not the answer. The answer is relationships. It's the reason why when the 72 were called, they were called to go two by two. And where were they to go and stay? In houses. They had hotel situations then. They weren't called to that. They could have been called to go and preach in the town square. They weren't called to that. They were called to go into homes and to preach the good news through relationships. Church, this is going to be messy, but this is going to be good. I pray that this time next year, there is no more rooms in these seats. That 2,400 seats filled would be a laughable thought because of all the ways that we have ministered to people. I remember thinking through my dissertation and, and one of the 
one of the guys that I, I read and ended up having the opportunity to meet and then ended up having the opportunity for him to mentor me for a little while was Dr. Jim Henry, who was actually Mike Hates' pastor at First Baptist Orlando all those years ago. And he wrote in a really small book, he made this statement that if you minister to hurting people, you'll never lack an audience. You want to fill seats? You want people to join your life group? You want to, you want to have the honor to share the gospel with somebody? Minister to their hurt. And I guarantee you, they will come back and say, why did you do that? And you will have the opportunity to give the answer to the why. Church, this is a task that is bigger than all of us. Nobody here, even the collect of us, we can't do this if God doesn't bless. So this is the shelter initiative presented to you today. And I ask that you would pray, that you would learn, and that you would give. I believe with all that I am, God is going to do an incredible work in our faith family over this next year. We are going to see things and do things that fill us with great joy. But church, stay focused and remember that our greatest rejoicing should never come from what we do or even what we see being done. Our greatest rejoicing should be that of what Jesus has already done for us, that our names are written in heaven. And if you read the New Testament, and I pray that you would, and you understand Romans chapter 8, my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, that if your name is written in heaven, there can be nothing to undo that. You can't fail so miserably that God erases your name. You didn't do anything to get it. It was by grace. Therefore, you can't do anything to lose it. Josh, how can you say that? Let me put it a different way. If you could lose your salvation, rest assured you would. I am thankful that my salvation is not dependent upon me. It is dependent upon my King, whose name is Jesus Christ. I do believe, as Peter said, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I pray that my life and how it unfolds from here will prove that statement every single day. This is a big ask today, church. Not one that you're going to commit to in this moment. I don't want it to be an emotional commitment. I want you to pray through this to August 14th, and then I want you to come to that meeting, and I want you to pray a little bit more. Then there will be a day of commitment coming soon, and then we will begin the journey to see what the Lord's going to do as we push back the darkness and watch the enemy run. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to be in this house. More than that, Father, I thank you for allowing me to be tied to all these, these people, these men and women who love you, God, who have been born again by your grace and who with intentionality live their lives out every day in a, in a job and a task and a call that is much bigger than them. And Lord, I pray today that although it may have sounded heavy, but Lord, that there would be great grace today because we know that the one who calls us is faithful and surely he will do it. And so we trust, Father, that where you call us, you have already provided the way and you've provided the results. So we walk humbly with you. Jesus, we love you and it's in your name that we pray and stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?